Dan if we haven't met before and uh, of course today we are entering the final week of Advent, uh, how quickly that's come upon us. Uh, but this is, a, this is a, such a, a, an important week in the Christian calendar. Uh, I don't know how much uh, we often appreciate that. Usually this week is just, you know, I've got to make sure I get down to Coles and get the chicken before everyone else does and, and make sure the presents are wrapped in the last minute, you know, nighttime shopping and all of that stuff. But th- this is one of the most important weeks for Christians around the world. Uh, and it is around the world. It's, it's Christians everywhere that look to the coming of Jesus in this week that we are just approaching. Uh, For example, I'll show you a few advents here. This is from Peru. Uh, You can obviously see some of the differences with some of our more traditional Western world uh, advents, uh, or sorry, nativity scenes. Uh, Obviously there, there's sort of this Incan or Mayan vibe, that's a bit of their history in Peru, uh, that's there in their clothing, even their little hats. Uh, And of course, the star of the show off to the left there, not a sheep, but a llama. I think that's great. Uh, over here we have, uh, from an African country, and probably the, uh, I mean, the material there, it's not porcelain or plastic or wood, it's, it's felt. Uh, that's something a little bit different. Uh, and then also we've got um, the, the darker skin, obviously, which is probably closer <laughs> than our Caucasian nativity sets to actual reality. Uh, last one here from El Salvador. I just like the sheep at discs. That's cool. <laughs> Uh, that'd make them probably a little harder for the shepherds to round up because they'd roll down the hill or whatever. But you can stack them overnight, so you, you take the pros with the cons, don't you? Uh, so, you know, all around the world, there are Christians in this season, we're in right now, this week of Advent, who are looking to the arrival, the Advent, that's what that means, the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, but no nativity scene can, of course, capture the true gravity of who this child in the manger is. Isn't that right? I mean, no felt or porcelain or wood or sheep discs or whatever is going to capture the gravity of Jesus. Only God can do that for us through his word. We rely on him to reveal Jesus to us. And so for this last couple of weeks, we've been looking to God's word and we've seen how Jesus is fully God. That was with Ben a couple of weeks ago, if you were here. And then last week we saw uh, how Jesus is fully Man, he is fully God and he is fully man. He's, he's more than just a baby. He's more than just someone who, you know, grows up to teach some wise things or to help the hurting. This is the man who is God and the God who became a man. He truly is, as we've called this series, the incomparable Christ. There is no one else like him. And so today... In this week of Advent, we're going to prepare ourselves to receive him. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What is our response to this God become man, this man who is God? Now, kids, uh, think about an Advent calendar. Uh, Daisy, maybe you have an Advent calendar at home that has all the numbers on it and you you take something out each day or you open a little door. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I had a chocolate one. So you'd open the little cardboard, you'd get the chocolate out. It was great. The chocolate didn't taste good, but just the idea of it was great. Uh, and it's numbered, of course, 1 to 25. It's counting up to 25th December to Jesus. And so, kids, we are looking forward to Jesus. 
We are looking forward to Jesus coming. We're going to celebrate that on Christmas Day. That's the purpose of Advent, isn't it? It's, it's, it's taking us somewhere. There's a trajectory. Uh, and it's meant to prepare us to trust Jesus, to marvel at him, to love him, to worship him afresh. And the way we're going to prepare ourselves to do that is using, I think, one of the most stirring and shocking passages in all of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. It's an incredible passage. The writer of this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, he brings into contact these two incredible truths about Jesus, that he's fully God, he's fully man. He brings those two truths right into close contact with each other in this passage. And, and what emerges is this, this vivid picture, right, with, with Jesus, who is, is both sides of the same coin, both God and man. Uh, and in making that connection, it's this, it's this shocking reality that in the person of Jesus, God was brought low. God was brought low. But also, in the person of Jesus, the man who is God was raised high again. Here's what we're going to see. Jesus was brought low and raised high. God became man. And the man who is God returned to God's rightful place. We need to see both sides of that coin this Christmas. And it's going to lead us to the ultimate question, how do we respond to this man who is God? How will we respond to this God who became man? How must we respond given who he is? So let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord God, we look to you because in and of ourselves we're insufficient. We cannot understand your word on our own. We need the mind of Christ we need the Spirit's work in us. Uh, and so, Lord, we ask you mercifully to give us that gift this morning. Hold us in your grace, both the grace of forgiveness through Christ, but the grace of revelation as well. The grace of opening to us the truth of who Christ is. We look to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we think of an opening, can we, can we come to Philippians 2 together? Open up your Bible. I want you to see these words on the page. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Look on with someone nearby. Or if you're feeling brave, you can jump up the back and there's some church Bibles up the back there. You're welcome to take those. That can be yours. You can bring that home with you. Uh, I'm on page uh, 980 in my Bible, which is the same as the church Bibles. Philippians 2. We're coming in at verse 6. You know how we sing songs every week at church. We've sung some carols this morning. Daisy, we sing songs every single week. Kids, we sing songs here because we want to worship God, but also we want to say very important things about God when we sing. Very true things. This passage here was probably an early Christian song. It doesn't rhyme. <laughs> we don't know what it sounds like, but it was probably an early Christian song. That, and that shows you how important it is, doesn't it? That they put this to music and wanted to memorize it and wanted to repeat it over and over. Now, a little bit of context here. In verse 1 to 5, have a look there. We can see that uh, Paul wrote this really with a, a moral or ethical purpose in mind. Uh, he wanted to show Christians how they must treat one another. Okay, And, and he moves towards verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus. That is... Look at Jesus' example, how he treated people, 
uh, and then imitate that in the way that you treat one another. So treat one another humbly. Treat one another with a servant heart. Don't put yourself above others, but put yourself below others. Now, that's, that's kind of the lead-in to this passage. But then in verse 6, we start to encounter really the depths of the fact that Jesus was brought low. And you see it there with the, ver- the, the, the opening word of verse 6, who? Jesus Christ, who? What's following here is a giant long relative clause, right? Scary way of saying, here's the, here's the thing we're talking about, Jesus, and now we're just going to expand on that and say a whole lot more. Kind of like if you're on Wikipedia and you're doing a, a deep dive, like I, I like photography, right? So you go on the wiki page for photography and then you scroll down, you see oh, Canon, Sony, Nikon, all these camera brands. You click on Nikon. And then it takes you to this whole extra page for Nikon. It tells you all about history. And then you click something else and on it goes, right? But you've just started from that first click on the word Nikon or Canon or whatever. Here, it's like Paul is saying, okay, remember, look to Jesus as your example. By the way, click that word Jesus. Now let's talk a whole lot more about who he is. So we move from the moral or ethical thing in verse 1 to 5, now to the Christological thing. Who is Jesus? And it's incredible what we see here. It's earth-shattering. We see that God became a man. And when we grip how high up Jesus was, it shows us just how far he went when he stooped low. Take a look here at verse 6. This is Jesus Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there's an incredible truth here. There's an incredible truth. But... We do have to work on a potential sticking point. Take a look there at the word form. He was in the form of God. Now, what might that sound like? Give me a bit of feedback. He was in the form of God. A bit like God, yeah? You don't know? That's okay. (laughs) That's all right, Daisy. And maybe he looked a bit like God, like his outer form. Kind of looked like God, but he wasn't really God. Uh, A bit like this guy. You know who this is? Optimus Prime. Come on. (laughs) I know I was a child of the 80s and 90s, but but this is Optimus Prime. He's the leader of the Transformers. There's our word, form, right? Uh, He's a robot or an alien or something. I'm not sure. But he he can take the form of a truck. He's not really a truck. He's a robot. And that's why you get the slogan for Transformers. Transformers. Yeah, more than meets the eye, or robots in disguise, or thank you, see, Christina, you get it, right? Robots in disguise, more than meets the eye, right? They're not really a truck. They're actually something more. They're a robot, right? Uh, Now, some people have thought the same thing when it comes to Jesus with this word form, okay? Like, you look at him, and, and yeah, he looks like God, so he never sinned. He did miracles. He taught wise things. Yeah, he looks like God, uh, but he's not really God. He's just kind of like in disguise, looking like God. But really, he's just a man. So if you've encountered the Jehovah's Witnesses, you've encountered Mormons, uh, that they believe something like this, and they'll read this verse in that way. The problem is they're wrong. When we look at this verse and the word form, the way it's used, uh, actually, it means something very different to he just looked like God, or he just seemed like God. Now, um, I'm going to be a language nerd for a moment, okay? Uh, And it's your fault for employing me as your pastor, okay? Uh, You're going to get this from time to time. Uh, But but the reason I'm going to be a language nerd is because this is really important. Like, 
if Jesus isn't God, our souls are on the line. This is life or death stuff. This is salvation stuff. So I'm going to show you here the Greek word behind that word form. Okay, here it comes up on the screen. It is the word morphe. Have a go at saying that. Morphe, right? You hear it, right? Form or, or morph. Sometimes we talk about things transforming or morphing. You see how they're related. Uh, the English word metamorphosis, right? A caterpillar goes through metamorphosis and becomes a butterfly, right? Now, whenever this word is used in Greek, it doesn't just mean looks like. It doesn't just mean seems like on the outside. Morphe has more to do with the nature or the substance or like the essential reality of something. So think about an insect that goes through metamorphosis, right? A caterpillar goes through the process and be emerges as a butterfly. We don't say, oh, that's just a caterpillar with wings, right? Its shape has changed, its appearance. No, it's a new thing. So we call it a new name, butterfly. The word morphe, metamorphosis, has to do with what a thing is, not just what it looks like. And so here in verse 6, Paul uses the word morphe to make that much bigger point about Jesus. Not just that he looks like God, but he is God. In fact, he could have using, uh, used a different word, the word schema, from which we get the word schematic. Right? You think about an electrical schematic or a machine schematic. It's just kind of a layout of, of how something looks. He could have used that word. He doesn't. He uses this word, morphe, to mean that Jesus is fully God right down to his bones. If you want more evidence for that, come down to verse 7. We read that Jesus emptied himself by taking the what? What's it say? Have a look. The form, or if you have the NIV, the, the nature of a servant. They mean the same thing, like the essence. Now, it's more fair there as well. Would you say that Jesus only looked like a servant? Would you say that he, he just kind of was playing servant, dress up, you know? Like, yeah, he looked like one on the outside, but he wasn't really a servant. No, of course not. <laughs> his very nature was one of a servant, right down to his bones, his essence. And so, too, he exists in the form, the morphe, the nature, the essence, the reality of God. So this is saying that Jesus is fully God. Now, as I said before, this is crucial to understand. This is life or death stuff. Now, why is that? Why is it that we need to see the height that Jesus began in before we see the depths to which he went? Well, because if Jesus isn't fully God, friends, we have no salvation. We have no salvation. Now, the writers of an early Christian document, this is in the 300s, uh, an early Christian document called the Nicene Creed, they realized this. I'm going to show you a bit of the Nicene Creed. Here's the section about Jesus, and it begins saying that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, right? So he, he wasn't created, he's always existed in all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, of the same essence, morphe, as the Father. Through him all things were made. Now, huge statements. Son of God, God from God, true God from true God, light from light, the same essence as the Father. He is God, is what the writers are saying. And it's, it's only after making these points about who Jesus is that the writers of the Creed then move on to say what he has done, right? Here's the very next part of the Creed. 
For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate. That means he became human. He took on flesh. Incarnate. It's like chili con carne, right? Chili with flesh. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified and, and on it goes. But here's the point. The person of Christ is fundamental to the work of Christ. Who Jesus is matters for what he accomplishes. If Christ isn't God, he can't save. And one of the reasons for that is because only the infinite God can pay for the infinite debt of sin. Think about it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't have to suffer for eternity on the cross? I mean, our sin racks up an infinite debt because we've sinned against the infinite holy God. This is why an eternal hell exists, right? Our sin requires infinite judgment, as it were. And yet, Jesus isn't still on that cross, is he? He's still not there paying an infinite debt that he cannot possibly exhaust. He dealt with the entirety of the sin of his people in a matter of hours. And at the end of it, he said, it is finished. Past, present and future. All of our sin thrown into the depths of the sea. How could he say something like that? Only if he is the infinite God who himself can pay for the infinite weight of sin. Do you see? This is why it is so important that Jesus is God. Do you get it? Are you looking to him in faith? Is this the Jesus in whom you personally trust right now? And with that established, with this picture of Jesus fully God in place, then we can begin to see the significance of him being brought low, can't we? God himself was brought low in the person of Jesus. The infinite God took an infinitely huge step down in becoming human in entering reality. Uh, as one great British writer, C.S. Lewis, puts it, no seed ever fell so far from a tree into so dark and cold a soil as the Son of God did. To leave the perfection of heaven, the glory of the Father's presence, the worship of the angels, to enter a world such as this. It's shocking. It's the pinnacle of injustice. And yet it's the pinnacle of love. It's incredible that this is our God. And we see that come through in the rest of verse 6. That Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he's fully God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's go back one, sorry, Rob, if we could. Thank you. Uh, he didn't hold on to his divine privileges, is what that's saying. That's the word grasped there. Uh, sometimes people have lost the plot here thinking that he, he let go of his divinity. We'll get onto that in a sec. But what it's saying is that uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't sort of insist on, hold tightly to, assert all the rights that are his by virtue of being God. So think about like you do your uh, Christmas shopping sometime this week, get your chicken, get your potatoes, whatever else you're going to get. Imagine if the CEO of Woolies decided to do his own Christmas shopping at one of his stores this year. He doesn't need to, does he? He doesn't even need to do click and collect. He can just walk in and... He doesn't even need to walk in. Someone can do it for him. Uh, but uh, imagine if he does walk in this year 
and he goes and he gets his shopping trolley full of stuff. And then he encounters, of course, that ultra-long Christmas uh, checkout line. Now, he would have the right, as the CEO of Woolworths Incorporated, or whatever it's called, to say, don't you know whose store this is? Like, part the waters, get out of the way, I'm going to the front, you let me check out all my stuff. In fact, you do it for me. Like, that would be his right as the CEO. And yet, that is the very thing Jesus doesn't do in becoming a man. He does not assert his divine privilege. That's exactly what this is saying. He didn't encounter his equality with God, uh, a thing to be grasped. He didn't insist on his divine status. Rather, as verse 7 puts it, he emptied himself. He became nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He goes from the highest place of all to the lowest place of all. He empties himself. And again, people can get hung up on that phrase, empties himself. Emptied himself of what? Well, someone might say his divinity. Like, did he, he let go of his godness to become a human? But look again at how verse 7 words it. He emptied himself by what? What's the next word? By? Taking. Or making himself, yes, Mary, yeah. He emptied himself not by subtraction, but addition. Not by losing, but by taking. By taking what? The form of a servant, the reality of a servant. Now, the theologian Bruce Ware has a good illustration. I mentioned him last week in his book, The Man Christ Jesus. Great read this week. Really encouraging read if you want to dwell on these things deeper. He has this great illustration. He says that imagine you're, you're going and you want to get a new car maybe from a dealer, okay? Like you've just come into a bunch of cash and, and you're going you're to splurge a bit. So off you go, you go to the dealer and uh, you take the new car for a test drive. Now, it's been a rainy day. And so as you're driving around, you hit a bit of a pothole and mud sprays up all over the side of the car. When you come back to the dealer, he is not happy. What did you do to my car? To which you reply, quite wisely, I think, I didn't do anything to your car because I didn't take anything away from it. I simply added to it. <laughs> kind of funny. I, I doubt it would really work with the dealer, would it? But, but there is a reality there that, that's true. You, you, you haven't changed the newness of the car. It's still shiny and new under the mud. All you've got to do is wash the mud off and it's brand new, right? No one would know the difference. Jesus, when he came as man, didn't lose his godness. He added, if you want, muddy humanity to it. And what that means is that who he is as God, of course, is kind of obscured by the mud. It's obscured by his humanity. It's sort of veiled so that we can't truly see who he is in his time on earth. But he's still there. He's still fully God underneath the humanity being fully God and fully man, that, that's kind of the relationship. Another way of putting it is that Jesus didn't empty himself of divinity, but he emptied himself into the form of a servant. He poured himself out into servanthood. Why did he do this? To serve us, to save us. Jesus was brought low in such a dramatic way so that sort of in, in bending down into humanity, he would lift up sinners with himself on his shoulders. It's incredible that Jesus has done this, that God has done this. And friends, this is what God is like. He's not like Ebenezer Scrooge from, uh, what's it called? The, the Christmas Carol. 
Charles Dickens. So he's not like Ebenezer Scrooge, miserly and wanting to take and take and take. He's a God who wants to give and give and give. For example, in another passage, uh, Paul puts it this way. I'll put it on the screen for you. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know, don't you? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Friends, this is our God, the God who is generous, who gives, who serves. And what does he want to give us? Restored relationship with himself, eternal life. That is his ultimate gift to us. And that can only happen if God bends down into humanity. Only the unique combination of 100% God and 100% man in the person of Jesus can actually save us. As verse 8 shows us, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, being brought low led Jesus from the cradle to the cross. And there he died to save us from the low to the lowest. He died a sinner's death, took our sin upon himself, the infinite judgment we deserve. He did it to serve us. And the significance of that, friends, only hits home when we see that this is the God of all creation who became a man. As God, he owed us nothing. And yet, as the God who became man, he gave us everything. Now, what is your response to that? What is your response? When you think about the nativity scene in your home, for example, or you're walking through Erin Affair and you see it there near Maya somewhere, what's your response to that baby in the manger? Do you see him in the way that Scripture shows us him? This God who became man, incredible, unjust, shocking, loving. Do you see that? And, and then what does that do in you? What, what is your response to him? You see, we're starting to touch on that now. And there's a lot to say on that. Uh, it kind of brings us to our next point. Uh, take a look here in verse 9. The, the passage shifts. And here we see that while Jesus was brought low, he was also raised high. He didn't stay brought low. He was raised high. He's been exalted as the God who became man, returning to his rightful place on the throne. And that too has to shape our response to him. Take a look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now, that first word is very important. The word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, what do you got to do? You got to ask what it's there for, right? It's pointing us back and then bringing us forward. And so what it's pointing us back to is how Jesus humbled himself, was brought low, obeyed the Father to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, because of this cross work, because of Jesus having humbled himself so, then God the Father raises him back up to the place that is rightly his. In fact, the place that is even more his because of the work that he has done. He is exalted to the highest place of all. As it says, he's been given the name that is above every name. And if you come to verse 11, 
you see that this name is the name Lord. Lord, King, Mighty God, the one in charge, the one deserving of worship. Now, Jesus was already the Lord, wasn't he? Uh, People in his time on earth called him Lord. Uh, And of course, he was the Lord of all creation, even before he came as a man. Uh, And yet, now his status right now in the heavenly realms is that he is God on full display. Uh, In our Bible reading plan, we've been reading Revelation recently. And you see there the lamb, don't you? The lamb who, who looked as though he was slain, but he's also the lion. And he's the one that the angels all worship and the martyrs under the throne that they all worship. Every tribe, every tongue, every language worshiping Jesus because his supremacy is on display. Still human, still bearing the scars. But now, as it were, that the divinity is unveiled so that people would worship him for who he really is. And a day is coming when the fact of Jesus' lordship, this man who has become God, or this man who is God rather, that fact of his will become clear to all of us as well. We don't see it right now. We see it in the pages of Scripture, but not yet with our eyes. The day is coming when we will see it with our eyes. It's the day when Jesus returns. And on that day, verse 10 to 11, take a look. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day's coming, friends, when every knee will bow before this Jesus. You know, our Advent calendars, they stop at 25. In one sense, they shouldn't. They should keep going. The significance of Christmas is that God came down, but the trajectory of Christmas is that Jesus was raised high. The man who is God was raised high, and he's coming back. Now, When we bow before the Lord, some are going to bow because they've been saved and they're thankful. And this is the day of of joy, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Some will not. Some will bow because they're in the presence of almighty God and they can do nothing but bend the knee. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of someone who's just like way more powerful than you before. Uh, My brother used to be an elite swimmer. And so, uh, you know, we'd be going all around the country all the time. He'd win national gold medals, all that sort of stuff. And 14-year-old Dan would spend a lot of time just pacing the pool deck with his head like glued into his Game Boy, (laughs) right? And and every so often I'd look up when I I just have a sense of someone passing me. And I'd look up and up and up and up. And there in front of me would be someone like, you know, Michael Klim on the left there, if you remember him just this bald sort of he-man that's like twice my height and twice my, my breadth. Uh, and then on the right there, Ian Thorpe, right? Multiple gold medal winning world record guy. Uh, six foot five inches, 100 kilograms of muscle, size 17 feet, right? And there I am, 14-year-old little bespectacled Dan with my Game Boy, right? True power. If, if these guys wanted to, They wouldn't do this to a 14-year-old, but they could like wreck me, couldn't they? (laughs) Being in the presence of of something powerful just has this this effect of of dwarfing you. And here, uh, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I watch them on TV and yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But it's another thing to be in the presence, isn't it? And and so for uh, us, as we are in the presence of this God-man, 
I mean, your stomach sinks, doesn't it, a little bit? Picture that reality. Face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. What will we do but bend the knee? Now, there's some background to this picture in the Old Testament, by the way, which helps us just go another layer with this to show that, that it's not just that we will bend the knee, it's that everyone will have to bend the knee. Flip over with me to Isaiah chapter 45. I think it's on page 607 if you're using the, the Black Church Bibles. Isaiah 45. I'm just going to read this, verse 22 to 25. I want you to see if you can hear any echoes from what we've just read in Philippians. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory or shall celebrate or shall worship. Now, you hear the obvious echo here, don't you? Verse 23, to him every knee shall bow, every tongue swear allegiance or confess that he is Lord. There you go. But there is a bit more context to this as well in verse 24 and 25. Uh, on that day, as I said, there'll be two kinds of bowing. There'll be some who bow in shame and some who bow in glory or in celebration or in worship. Now, first, for some, there will be shame. And there's a sense of justice here, friends. Uh, we, we long for justice in the world, don't we? I mean, if you're driving in a school zone and it's 40 and you see someone just like vroom, fly past you at 80 or something in a school zone then you go, where's the cops when we need them? Don't you? We long for justice. If someone does something to harm those that you love, if someone sort of sells you down the river with, with a scam, if someone does something that, that makes you just go, that's not right, we long for justice. And there is a picture of justice here. God promises to bring justice against all who were incensed against him, all those who've rebelled against God against Jesus as the rightful ruler of their lives. And friends, that's all of us, isn't it? Now, what happens to those who've rebelled against God? They shall come and be ashamed, verse 24. They shall come and be ashamed. This is confronting, but it's just. Choosing to ignore or rebel against the creator of the universe, it carries a consequence. And only the horrors of hell the infinite eternal punishment of sin awaits those in this condition. But, on the other hand, some will not be put to shame. They'll be, verse 25, justified. They will be, in other words, declared innocent of their wrongdoings. And as a result, they will glory. They will celebrate they will worship. Now, this is for anyone who responds to the invitation of verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. You see, God loves to give. He loves to give. He loves to give forgiveness. And today, of course, we don't 
uh, we don't just turn to the God of Israel. We do turn to the God of Israel, but we turn to the Savior of Israel and the Savior of the world, Jesus, the Messiah. The one who alone can say, with verse 22, by myself I've sworn, by my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. Sorry, verse 21, verse 22, uh, for I am God, there is no other. Jesus alone can say that, I am God. I alone can bear the infinite weight of sin. The man who is God, raised to the highest place again, the only one who can save. Those of us who turn to him are saved. Once again, as C.S. Lewis pitches it, uh, once one has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great, complicated, heavy burden, right? get that picture, someone stooping low, he must stoop in order to lift, right? He must also uh, almost disappear under the load before incredibly he, he straightens his back and then marches off with a whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Here's the image that, that he's giving us. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend, right? He goes down to come back up again and bring ruined sinners with him on his shoulders. For those of us who've turned to Jesus, trusting him alone for forgiveness, we won't be ashamed when Jesus returns. That will be a day of glory because we've been justified, as it says there in verse 25. Justified, declared innocent, therefore a day of joy and of worship and of celebration. We are face to face with our Saviour and so therefore we will bend the knee in worship to this God who became man, this man who is God, raised high. So let's bring this together. Jesus was brought low and raised high. There's the significance of Christmas, brought low to save us, but also the trajectory of Christmas. He has been raised high and will return, and we will one day stand before him. When God became a man, you see, it changed everything, didn't it? It changed absolutely everything. And so what is your response to him? How will you respond to him today, this week, and on Christmas Day? I'll give you three words that I think make for a good response. Here's the first. Be thoughtful. Thoughtful. Not just when it comes to choosing your Christmas gifts. I mean something deeper. Think. Reflect. These are deep and wonderful things we've seen about Jesus. They are precious realities that turn us to trust and worship. Think on them. A couple of weeks ago, Ben said there's tremendous value to, to sitting at your desk and, and disciplining yourself to, to read your Bible and write some notes. Think. Or if you're a verbal processor, right, you're a bit more relational, give someone a call, organize a walk, read scripture together and then chew their ear off for a while. Think, right? And I mean this if you're not a Christian as well. Think about these things. It shocks me how many times I talk to someone who would say, yeah, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe these things. And I just ask them, okay, so have you read the primary source for yourself? No. So you mean to tell me that you are just going by what you've heard from someone else? Think. I believe God's given you a brain. Research this stuff. Think through what the scriptures say about Jesus. Bring your questions. Throw them at us. Right? We'd love to think this stuff through with you. 
And of course, if you are a Christian, take the time. Be disciplined. Take some time to think, reflect, be thoughtful around this man who is God this Christmas. Right? We're going to do lots of different things. Obviously, we're going to eat pavlova. We're going to sit by the pool. We're going to have ham off the bone. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, did you know it takes you only about three hours to read the Gospel of Luke? Think about how much time you are going to have around the Christmas break. If you've got kids, read it to your kids just in little bits. You might just verse here, verse there. Right? Think. Be thoughtful. Second, be humble. Thoughtful, humble. Don't lose focus on who this child is, this child in the manger. He is not someone we can control. He is not someone we can just set up on the shelf and say, there we go, there's my Jesus. No, this is the man who is God. And so this Christmas, as with any time of year, is a time to keep reflecting on our lives, humbly bending the knee now before this Jesus. Ask the question, do I really trust him? Have I turned to him for salvation? Am I currently in him? Is he currently covering my sins by faith? Is there any sin for me to repent of? Is there anything in my life that I need to bring out into the light? Because friends, now's the time to do it. Like, don't wait till January. Oh, yeah, 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 New Year's resolutions. Yep, we'll get onto it. Oh, damn, when does that ever work? It's never worked for me. Now is the time to do it. Because it's, it's either now bend the knee, which leads to celebration and joy and freedom, uh, or later bend the knee and in all likelihood in shame. Right? So be humble. Third word, be joyful. Be joyful, friends. Let it well up in you. Thoughtful, humble, joyful. And not just because of carols or presents or family or food. No, good things. But, but be joyful because you see who Jesus really is. God has revealed it to you from cradle to cross to crown. You see this, Jesus, because he has opened your heart and opened your eyes and given you the gift of faith. What a wonderful thing. You are not headed for shame. You are headed for glory. And so marvel at this Jesus and who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture to us. Marvel at him. Worship him. Enjoy him. Spend time with him. This almighty God who stooped to serve and save you. Fall to your knees afresh. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we, we do want to worship you as the one who is beyond compare. And so please incline our hearts. We just simply pray. Incline our minds, incline our lives, incline our desires to see and savor you this Christmas, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.